I began meeting Christian and Muslim clergy people to have an interfaith dialogue. And I realized, wow, how can I have an interfaith dialogue before I know the other as human beings? Now, I have to explain what I mean by that. In America, Jews, Christians, and Muslims know each other as human beings. They interact within civil society. They go to the same schools often, the same community centers. They shop in the same place. They work together. They're divided by religion. So they can come together and talk about religion on the basis of their other commonalities, including English language. When I tried to do interfaith dialogue here in Israel, I realized, wow, there's no commonality, there's no common basis. We don't speak the same language literally or figuratively. We don't live in the same society. We're right next to each other, but we're so different. So I realized I was going in the wrong direction. Before Hanan, you tried to meet Christians and Jews, try to meet human beings. Then there'll be a basis to meet them as Christians and Jews. And I realized at that point, that I'd never met a Palestinian in my life. I've lived among them in Judah and Samaria, what the rest of the world calls the West Bank, for over 34 years at that point. There are 80% of the population, perhaps more, but I live in my Jewish bubble with all my other Jewish neighbors, and we don't know who they are at all. one person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Shalom, salam, everyone. This is Barbara Heller. I'm so delighted to have you back to see one beautiful soul. In the past few weeks, we have seen some peaceful and also not so peaceful protests about what is going on in the Middle East in cities like London, Los Angeles, Baltimore, New York City. For me and many, many others, the world felt like it was in a very big tumult for the last few weeks. It feels like tensions are dying down a bit and there is a proclaimed ceasefire in Israel-Palestine right now. But will it continue? What's happening just beneath the surface? We get into some of that today on the podcast. It's a subject that I haven't tackled until now, probably because I've been afraid to. I've been going through my own sort of metamorphosis and transformation over how I've been looking at this conflict for the last 20 years. Just this whole idea of making peace. Is it possible and how do we make it happen individually and collectively every single day? I was so very lucky and inspired to speak with Hussein Abubakar in my last episode. Please go back and listen to it if you haven't already. I think you will find him a very courageous and inspiring human as well. And today I have none other than Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger out of Israel, and I've known him for about 20 years. I was just so blown away by how courageous he is and what he's doing every day to make peace. And I think that you'll be inspired as well. I can't wait to hear what you think of it. You can feel free to reach out to him at friendsofroots.net. That's friendsofroots.net, or go to instagram.com slash building peace underscore Israel Palestine. I'd love for you to join me in a three-day free workshop June 23rd through the 25th on Facebook. It's going to be a live session with me and a bunch of other wonderful people. And it's called I Am Ready to Tell My Story. Just go to Facebook, look for the group I Am Ready to Tell My Story and join me there. Rav Hanan. It is so good to see and hear you. I met you 20 years ago in Jerusalem and got the honor to study with you in a room full of 
Ethiopian Jews and Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic. It was like a rainbow of students. And I learned so much just by being in your presence. And I'm so grateful and honored to talk to you today. Welcome. Welcome to See One Beautiful Soul. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. You are someone I see identifying as an Orthodox Jew living in the land of Israel. And you have this distinctive, unique purpose that's very obvious to me to make, I want to say like an intense peace <laughs> with non-Jewish people living in the region. I just spoke with a Muslim about how he so much wants to make peace with Jews and non-Jews. And here I am talking to an Orthodox Jew who's saying, I really want to make peace because we were talking about Israel so much in my last episode, I thought it was only fair. Tell me how you got to this place. What changed for you? Or was there a change? And what do you think it was inside of you that gives you this distinctive role in the world? I was apparently born with an openness to the other. From the very beginning, I have uh, felt that and I've been drawn to that. However, for most of my life, most of my career, that openness to, to the other was an openness to the Jewish other. Whether as an Orthodox rabbi, I was open to reforming conservative Jews and rabbis, and I taught them and helped them in their studies and their progress. Ethiopian Jews, when they first came to Israel, and I got involved in as an activist and helping in their absorption, and whether it was my work with Jewish women and trying to help them to become part of the tradition of Jewish learning. Later on in my career, I got involved in reaching out to Christians, and that was a big step for me. I was sent by the Jewish community here in Israel to work as a rabbi in, in the U.S. I made connections with, with Christians, got involved in interfaith dialogue. I discovered that I, I could reach a deeper level of human understanding and spirituality from the interfaith dialogue with Christians that I was involved in. And that brought me to dialogue with Muslims, and I felt spiritually enlightened and expanded, such that when I came back home to Israel in 2013, I thought I would like to take upon myself a career change. I taught uh, Torah, Judaism, to Jews for over 30 years, and now I wanted to do in Israel something like the interfaith dialogue I'd done in America. I began meeting Christian and Muslim clergy people to have an interfaith dialogue, and I realized, wow, how can I have an interfaith dialogue before I know the other as human beings? Now, I have to explain what I mean by that. In America, Jews, Christians, and Muslims know each other as human beings. They interact within civil society. They go to the same schools often, the same community centers. They shop in the same place. They work together. They're divided by religion. So they can come together and talk about religion on the basis of their other commonalities, including English language. When I tried to do interfaith dialogue here in Israel, I realized, wow, there's no common there's no common basis. We don't speak the same language, literally or figuratively. We don't live in the same society. We're right next to each other, but we're so different. So I realized I was going in the wrong direction. Before Hanan, you try to meet Christians and Jews, try to meet human beings. Then there'll be a basis to meet them as Christians and Jews. And I realized at that point that I'd never met a Palestinian in my life. I've lived among them uh, in Judah and Samaria, what the rest of the world calls the West Bank, for over 34 years at that point. Uh, there are 80% of the population, perhaps more. But I live in my Jewish bubble with all my other Jewish neighbors, and we don't know who they are at all. One of the additional impetuses that brought me to meet Palestinians was I was driving my car. This must have been the end of 2013. 
in Judea and Samaria, around where I live. The area is called Gush Etzion. I had two Protestant pastors with me from the U.S. in the car. They're visiting from Hold the Hold on US. one second. So do you live in what's called the occupied, occupied territories? Do you live in the I Jewish? live in what's called occupied territory, a uh, half hour south of Jerusalem. Okay, and I'm we're going to put a pin in that. We can talk okay. about what exactly. that means later. Exactly. So they wanted to show them how the uh, biblical prophecies of the Jewish people coming home after years of exile are coming true. And with great pride, we drove around and I showed them everything we've accomplished in these past 50, 60 years. So as we're driving, I picked up a hitchhiker. Then I picked up a second hitchhiker. And when the second hitchhiker asked to get out of the car and the two of them left, one of the pastors turned to me and he said, Hanan, that was a great thing you did. Picked up hitchhikers, you taught us a lesson in Jewish ethics. They said, no one in Texas ever does that. They come from Texas, at least one of them. So I said to them, the pastor from Texas was Bob, Bob Roberts. I said, Bob, it's not just me. We all pick up hitchhikers around here because we have a common uh, mission. We have a common uh, identity. We trust each other. And I do my best to pick up every person who puts out his finger for a ride. And by the time I finished that story, I realized I was lying. I was lying to Bob and Kevin. And even worse, I was lying to myself. I said I pick up every person. What I should have said is I pick up every Jew. I'd never picked a Palestinian in my life. I'd never thought of picking up a Palestinian. And I didn't even realize that I don't pick up Palestinians because I never noticed they were there. In other words, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, that the Palestinians don't exist for me. They don't exist as human beings. And I felt terrible. And perhaps because they're pastors and I'm a rabbi, I felt like it was, uh, to use uh, Catholic terms, like confession. Here are these two pastors, and I suddenly realized in their presence that I have this moral blemish, that I don't see the people around me as human beings. So I said to them, I'm going to have to do something about this, about my spiritual blindness. And I said to myself, what I have to do is meet Palestinians, and then they'll become human for me. I took that upon myself, and after a few months, perhaps it was a few weeks, I'm sorry, a few months, weeks, I realized that I was failing. No one can introduce me to them. There's literally a Palestinian village of 500 meters from my front door. 600 people live there. I couldn't find a way to meet anyone there. What am I going to do? Knock on their door and say, I have to meet you? Anyway, uh, finally it happened over Facebook. Another Protestant pastor, a different one in the U.S., wrote to me that he can arrange it for me to meet Palestinians. He was coming to the Holy Land. Uh, pastor John sat in my living room, January 2014. He told me his whole story, he won't go into it. And he told me when and where I should go to meet Palestinians. Okay, was it going to be a week and a half later? The day rolls around. The last Wednesday of January 2014, in the afternoon. I get up from my chair in my living room. My wife says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to meet Palestinians. And she screams, you can't do that. They'll kill you. I remember approaching her and seeing the terror in her eyes. She begged me not to go. I knew I had to do this. And I didn't tell her that I was afraid as she was. So I walk out of the house. My heart is pounding. Didn't know what they do to me. I didn't take the car. I had a map that said, walk here, here. I walked about 22 minutes and I got there. So I walk in to this metal gate surrounding a, uh, that's the gate to a compound surrounded by a rock fence, Palestinian farmland in the middle of nowhere. I walk in, there's no buildings there. 
There's no animals. But I saw something that can't be. I saw a miracle. I saw 15 Israelis and 15 Palestinians. They were doing something that I've never seen before. They were talking to each other. Not formally, but there was groups of two here and three here and four here. There was one woman who wasn't talked to anyone. Muslim, head to toe in brown, clearly observant. I walked right up to her and I said, hello. She said hello back to me. After about a minute of talking in English, I said, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And she answers me, I can't believe I'm talking to you because we don't talk to Israeli settlers. Slight pause, but we continued. And then just, I think, three or four minutes passed, not more, her son comes, comes over. She tells me his name is Yazan, he's 17 years old. We shake hands, start to talk. And you see that Yazan's wearing a jacket. And on the jacket are written three words in English over the heart. And the words were seeds of peace, seeds of peace. Now, I did not know what seeds of peace is, no idea. But I knew something, one thing for certain. He's a Palestinian. His jacket says peace. Here are two things that can't go together. Peace and Palestinian. Because I knew they're all terrorists. So I said to myself, he probably doesn't know what the jacket says. He probably found it. Someone gave it to him. Half jokingly, I said, Yazin, what seeds of peace? And instead of telling me, I don't know, he tells me it's the name of a summer camp in Maine, USA. A camp that takes Israeli kids and Palestinian kids out of the conflict zone for a summer of recreation and reconciliation. He said he got back from that camp a few months ago, said, spent the summer there. And he told me he met Israeli kids, their friends on Facebook, had a great time. And he told me he was so affected by that summer that now he wants to spend some of his life building bridges of peace between our two peoples. And I remember looking at Yazin and smiling and listening, unsure if I can believe what he's saying. There can't be such a camp. And Palestinians' kids can't go there. Because Palestinians are brutal. They're violent. They're terrorists. And I got confused. And you might say that Yazin was the first Palestinian that began the process of unsettling me. And then his father walks over. Jamal and I shake hands. He's a short, stocky guy. Intimidating, I would say. He tells me they're from Beit Umar. Whoa, Beit Umar? My heart skips a beat. I know Beit Umar. It's a five-minute ride down the road towards Hebron to the south. And I've driven on that road many times. There's a sharp bend there. My car has been stoned. I've come up against Maksumim, against roadblocks in the middle of the road, afraid I'm going to be attacked, ambushed. And I have an acquaintance. I had an acquaintance, Dr. Shmuley Gilis, who was murdered while he was driving home from Hadassah Hospital, where he was taking care of Jewish and Arab patients. So I know the people in Beit Umar, they're terrorists. And now I'm meeting one of them. And this guy, Jamal, how can I talk to him? So it wasn't easy. It was challenging. But we talked. And he tells me, like, the story of his life. Two anecdotes I remember are the following. He says, Hanan, you know, there's no Israelis, there's no Jews in Beit Umar. We're all Muslims, Palestinians. And because the only Jews we really know, the only Israelis we really know, are the Israeli soldiers who guard the entrance to the village and make life difficult for us. We hate the soldiers, so we hate all Israelis, we hate all Jews. There's no one in Beit Umar told me who would ever want to meet a Jew over a cup of coffee. 
except he said for this neighbor he had long, long time ago. And this neighbor of his told Jamal, come with me to Jericho, the city of Jericho. I go to interfaith dialogue sessions. They are Jews and Muslims. Come and meet them. And Jamal said to me in our conversation, Hanan, I told my friend, I'll never, ever come with you. That's only for the weak people and the traitors. But the friend wouldn't get off Jamal's back. He tagged along once. Jamal told me about the experience of being in that room with Israeli Jews. Sat in the big circle. Jamal said, I didn't sit in the circle. I sat in the corner. I didn't participate, but I listened. And at one point, one of the Israeli Jews got up from his chair, Jamal tells me, and he looked at me, at Jamal. Made me really uptight. He started walking towards me. I was really afraid. He came right up to me, and he forced me to shake his hand. And then he talked to me, asked me questions. I had to answer his questions. We had a conversation, God forbid. And when the guy finally left, Jamal says, I wiped the sweat off my brow and ran to the bathroom to wipe the, the tumah, how do you say, the, uh, the filth off my hand from touching an Israeli Jew. And I vowed never to come back to this terrible place. Jamal goes home, tells his wife about this very bad experience. She agrees it was a big mistake to go there, and they should never tell anyone. Of course, never go back. But Jamal's friend says, Jamal, come with me next time. Jamal says, no, come with me, no, come with me, no. In the end, Jamal went back with his wife because she wanted to make sure and she wanted to tell the people off. So they went there and they went a second time and a third time and they brought their kids. And Jamal ends the story and he tells me, Hanan, who I thought there was only an enemy I met a human being who turned out to be a partner, and that changed me. I'm listening to the story, and I don't know what to do with myself. This story contradicts everything I know to be possible, everything I know to be true. Jamal tells me another story. He says, Hanan, you know, there's lots of little kids in Beit Umar, and a lot of them, when they see someone who looks like you, they start to cry. I said, what are you talking about? Why did they start to cry? And he got offended when I said, I don't understand. He was like frustrated. He said, you don't get it? It's the kippah you have in your head. And it's that beard. Because everyone looks like you. They walk into Beit Umar with submachine guns and they kill the kids. So I thought, thought that was borderline anti-Semitic. How does he think such ridiculous things? And I wanted to tell him off. But somehow I understood that my job at that moment was not to tell him off, it was to absorb his experience. I understood that was a moment of blessing for me. Because for the first time in my life, I'm experiencing how the other experiences me. And what I have to do is hold it, hold the experience and listen. I didn't say anything. And then a light bulb goes off in my mind. And I see in my mind's eye, my family, my sons, my son-in-law, with other friends walking out of a lunch food on a teul, on a trip in the fields. And of course, my son-in-law and my two sons are carrying pistols. Everyone carries a pistol. And I suddenly realize these little kids in Beit Umar, when they see these different looking Israeli Jews carrying guns, that's frightening. So I said to Jamal, what do you want? We carry guns because we're afraid of you. And he looked at me as if I fell from the moon. He said, what are you talking about? You're not afraid of us because we're afraid of you. And that was a moment of utter understanding and utter 
un-understanding at the same time. They're afraid of us. Why are they afraid of us? Oh, they are afraid of us. But how could they be afraid of us? Who's afraid of who? And I walked away from Jamal challenged, confused, upset. We t- a lot of people I talked to that day. At the end, we sat in a circle, 15 Israelis and 15 Palestinians. And Ali Abu Awad, the Palestinian owner of the land we were sitting on and the Palestinian convener of the event, he said, thank you everyone for coming to my family land. Welcome. I'm Ali Abu Awad, proud Palestinian from an old Palestinian family, father and grandfather and great-grandfather from Kubeba. Today, you guys call it Lachish, here at Gat. 1948, father told us that the Israelis came and threw us out. We walked the 20 miles or so to Beit Umar. We settled here. 1967, you Israelis came again. And since then, we're living under the difficulties and the suffering of the Israeli occupation. And I don't hear the words he used after Israeli occupation because my mind was fixated. What's this Israeli occupation thing? What is he talking about? Now, I had never ever in my life heard a human being use those two words in my presence. Of course, I heard on the radio and the newspaper, but here's someone telling him he lives under Israeli occupation, which means my occupation. But where does this thing exist? I've never seen it. Because when I drive on the roads of Samaria, when I walk in the fields of Judea, I don't see occupation. I see the return of the Jewish people to our ancient homeland after 2,000 years of exile. What could be more righteous than that? It was only five years after the Holocaust, three years after the Holocaust, we declared the state of Israel one little dot on the map where we can put our tired, bedraggled, half-dead bodies. And now this Ali Abawad character is telling me that he lives under my occupation. And from telling the stories of his family's experience, I realized that my people's triumph is his people's tragedy. And my people's justice is his people's suffering. And it was so hard to hear. Now, he wasn't trying to convince me of anything. He was talking to a group of people, his life story, not anything political. And he told how, as a young man, he saw Israeli soldiers come into the house in the middle of the night and beat up his mother. She was taken away to jail. He told us he was sentenced to 10 years in Israeli jail and never told the charges against him. Even his lawyer wasn't told. It was a secret file that can't be revealed. And he told how he was threatened by the interrogators that if he doesn't confess to things he didn't do, he'd be put 10 years in jail. And he was. And he then talks about how he, in jail, learned Gandhi and learned Martin Luther King and came out of jail as a a nonviolent peace activist. All this blew my mind. I was upset. I was angry. I was confused. I felt like I was falling into a black hole. And I went home that day. I remember days walking back and forth in my study, feeling my stomach is churning. I'm getting nauseous. It's like I have to bend down and pick the stomach up and put it back in because I'm so, so confused. Really, I felt that my, I couldn't go on. Ali made his story so real and it contradicts my story. How can I live with a contradiction? And I went and I searched out Ali Abuwad. I found him in the same place that I first met him. And I said, I have to talk to you. And I wasn't the only Israeli that wanted to talk to him. And he wasn't the only Palestinian that started to gather around there. And we talked. Must have been at the beginning, 12, 15 people. We sat in a circle, I would say once a week, for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. And I don't know how this happened. We didn't set down any ground rules. But somehow we managed 
almost always not to yell and scream and not to try and prove that they're wrong and we're right. We just told stories and listened to stories. Ali told the story of his people, of his experience, of his suffering, of everything that happened in jail, everything he learned from Martin Luther King, all his experience with violence and nonviolence, about suffering and about aspirations, about identity. And I have to say, there were multiple times when I felt that Ali telling the story of his people was like a dagger to my heart because his story contradicts my story. And it was the urge to argue, to disagree, to yell, or just to leave was so great, but we stayed and listened. And when we Israeli Jews told the story of our identity of 3,000 years of connection to the land of Israel, of 2,000 years of exile, of coming home after all those years to the land of Israel, well, when Israeli Jew from New York tells a Palestinian he's come home to the land of Israel, that's like a dagger to the Palestinian heart because it contradicts everything he knows. But they listened. And after a few months of tremendously difficult listening, Ali said, Hanan, we have to find a way to fit two truths into one heart and two peoples into one land. And I'll tell you some of the insights we came to. We learned, we saw, we felt that most Palestinians go to sleep at night hoping and dreaming and praying that the Israelis will disappear tomorrow. Because they'll learn they don't belong here and they'll leave. And we Israelis go to sleep at night certain that the day will come and the Palestinians will disappear because they'll understand that it's ours and not theirs. And then we saw that no, no one's going anywhere. The Palestinians have no other place to go. And we Jews certainly have no other place to go. It's home for both of us. And furthermore, we began to see how each side builds its identity upon the nullification of the other side's identity. You know what the Palestinians say? They say, Jew, beautiful religion, but it's a religion, it's not a people. A religion doesn't need a land, so go back to Russia. You know what any Palestinian told me, go back to Russia? Or go back to New York. What are you taking your land for? What are you colonizing the place? Settlers, foreigners. And you know what the Israelis say to the Palestinians? Palestinian? No, there's no such thing as Palestinian. There never was a Palestinian state. You're Arabs. You can be in Jordan, Syria. Go back where you came from. Go back to Lebanon. Why are you here taking your land? And each side thinks they can tell the other side who they are. And we began to realize you can't tell anyone who they are. You have to listen and let them speak. That's who they are, who they say they are. And the other side as well. And we Israelis began to understand that the Palestinians belong here. And the Palestinians began to understand that the Israelis belong here. But to say the words I just said is almost impossible for both sides because it contradicts everything we're trained in. We're trained in a zero-sum game. It's them or us. And if we admit anything is true about them, then it undermines our identity in both directions. And we began to realize you don't have to be wrong for me to be right. It could be your land is, and it's still my land. And I'll say something that many people, most people who are not involved in what I'm involved in will sound heretical. The whole land from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea is Palestine. And the same whole land from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River is Israel. That's 
historically true, and it's certainly the truth of identity. And there's no other way forward except to recognize our truth and their truth at the same time. So we began to realize we created something new. I'll explain why this is new. Because until the present, of course, there have been peace movements before Oslo, after Oslo, but almost all of the peace movements, almost, had been secular Muslim Palestinians talking to secular Israeli Jews, in which each side doesn't bring the fullness of its identity to the table because they don't carry it in their heart. And what that means is peace has been a matter of universals meeting universal, human beings meeting human beings, which is great. I love human beings. I'm one of them. But it hasn't been Jews meeting Muslims. It hasn't been strong Zionists meeting strong Palestinian nationalists. And what we were doing and what I just described was Jews who are deeply con connected to the land, to Zionism, to the Bible, to Judaism, meeting Palestinians who are religious Muslims, who are refugees from 1948, who've been in Israeli jail, the people with the strongest identities on both sides began to listen to each other. We were bringing it to a whole new level. And we founded Roots. We didn't intend to found an organization, but that's what happened. Muslim, Palestinian Roots and Jewish, Israeli, Zionist Roots meeting. We call ourselves in Hebrew, Shorashim and Arabic, Judor, the Israeli-Palestinian Grassroots Initiative for Understanding Nonviolence and Transformation. It's about expanding identity. I don't have to undo or erase who I am. I'm a Jew, a Zionist, a settler. I'm deeply connected to this, to this land. I believe that the Jewish connection to it is eternal and legitimate, but that cannot come at the expense of another people that also has a historical, religious, legitimate connection to that same land. So I expand my identity to continue being who I am, but also to be a little bit of the other. That's what we're doing in Roots. That's what the Palestinians also in Roots are doing. We're a joint initiative. The Israeli-Palestinian grassroots initiative for understanding nonviolence and transformation. But that does not mean that politics is unimportant in my eyes or in Roots' eyes. Politics is extremely important. We believe that the present political reality of occupation, and I'll, I'll, we'll get to the occupation thing you said we'd pin it, the present reality is wrong. It's bad. It's bad for both sides. It, it should change yesterday, not yesterday, tomorrow. It has to change politically. So why didn't I talk about politics? Why am I not a political activist? The reason is because we've learned in roots that there are political questions of borders, of security, security of resources, but the issues are much deeper. This is a conflict over identity. Who are we and who are they? What land is this, Israel or Palestine? And therefore, political negotiations of take and give are important and they have to take place. But if they're not accompanied by and even preceded by a expansion of identity, a recognition, a trust, I embrace of the truth of the other side's understanding of who he or she is. If that doesn't come first, then political negotiations will blow up in our faces like Oslo did. 
if it doesn't take into account identity, if it's not based upon this expanded identity, also created enemies. The religious Jews most connected to land, the religious Muslims most connected to land, they blew it up on their faces because they weren't involved in it. They weren't because it was, be, it was between secular Jews and secular Muslims. So in Roots' understanding, we are creating the human groundwork for a better future of dignity, equality, human rights, respect and recognition on this little sliver of land that both sides call home. Okay, well, I haven't stopped crying since you started talking and I wanna talk about why I'm crying because I think it's uh, actually what this whole talk is about. I came from a home that there was a lot of fighting and I never felt home. I think a lot of my listeners can relate to that because I come from a generation where over 50% of my, of my generation, our parents got divorced. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because when we spoke the other day and I, I told you that I'm having a conflict right now because I see all this anti-Semitism and horrific battling of this, who, who's a bigger influencer in Bella Hadid, 47 million people looking at her post saying Israel is a genocidal force. It hurts me. And it makes me feel like my home is in trouble. And when I went to Israel in 2001, right around the time that I met you, I felt home and I couldn't understand it, even though I'd never lived in Israel. And I developed my own narrative. I looked at this land and I, I was there during the Antifada. I left the World Trade Center. I don't know if you knew that. To go on this trip to Israel to learn about my roots and on September 11th, 2001, I decided to get a cell phone for the first time. And as I'm standing in the Salcom Shalom store on Khan Fenesharim in Harnof, the Twin Towers fall down. And I think, oh my gosh, God saved my life. I'm standing in Israel, learning in yeshiva without a television set about my people. And I'm buying a cell phone at the exact moment that the Twin Tower, and we're watching it happen in real time. And I'm I'm having this like completely metaphysical experience. And at the same time, someone's getting run over by a Palestinian a few yards away and there's shootings every day and we're hearing the bombings in Gilo. And I, ha I leave Israel with PTSD and I'm just hafuch, like I'm all over the place. And so my narrative began then, where I'm feeling at home in a place that's in complete chaos. Why am I telling you all this? Because one of my rabbis, Rav Benny Friedman, is a commando in the army, and he has his stories about going door to door and being kind to these Palestinians, trying to find, you know, who's the terrorist in the house, who isn't. And I start to develop this narrative, which it's us against them or them against us and who's going to win. And we're so right. Like this is our place. And I totally relate to what you said. And now it's 20 years later. And I never have ever thought that all Palestinians or all Arabs or all Muslims are bad. Never, ever, ever. In fact, when I was in Israel 
even in 2001, I used to talk to Palestinians every day. I would find one to talk to and I'd say, how's it going? And, you know, I think they'll ever be peace. And I've always been a peace because I've always seen one beautiful soul. But as we were talking the other day and you said something so profound, you said, we can't have peace until we have healing. If we tried to make peace right now, it wouldn't work because there's too much narrative. Even if you're open-minded, story is too great. And the last conversation I had with this beautiful Muslim, Hussein Abakar, we talked about fundamental beliefs and how destructive fundamental beliefs plus a narrative can be. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking it's the politics. It's the politics that get in the way. It's Iran giving money to Hamas to sh shoot rockets into Israel. It's we're right, they're wrong. It's this president over that prime minister and this political party. Politics to me has become the new religion. And that's why I started this podcast is because I want you to pick a faith, even if it's a combination. Like I sometimes feel a little Buddhist because I meditate every day. So I guess I'm a Jubu, but I think faith is so important. I think a set of values and laws are so important. And I think that they all should come up along with a little card that we look at every day. Is this hurting anybody? Is this hurting myself? Is this hurting the world? What's the future going to be if I keep going on this path of my fundamental beliefs, saying that this group doesn't exist. This group doesn't matter, or this group is full of fill in the blank, terrorists, racists, Nazis, genocidal people. Hitler was voted into power, again, politics, not religion, by millions of people, not just a few people. People read his book, Mein Kampf, and they thought, oh, it must be the Jews, let's get rid of them. And six million other people, but six million Jews, right? So now we're supposed to be fine with Germany because even though some of those grandchildren that voted for him, they weren't them. And they're so enlightened. Germany is the most liberal place on earth right now. They teach the Holocaust. They care about Jews. They supposedly, like it's a big part of their, we have to talk about it and think about it. How do we reconcile the history of people who are fundamentalist Muslims who learn from a young age, maybe along with the politics of it, Jews are evil, Christians are evil. We need to eradicate them in order to have our full third jihad come to the world where this is the fundamental belief system. And I talked about it last time with, with Hussein and he said, he decided to start asking questions about that. Well, how could this whole group of people be evil? So how do you reconcile that history? I think I can understand both sides here. As Jews, we know as part of our historical consciousness that we lived in this land for a thousand years, from the time of Joshua to the time of the fall of the Second Temple. We know that it's our homeland. We have archaeological artifacts from then. We have written texts, and we have the historical memory. You know, we say at the Seder, the Passover Seder, v'choldor v'dor, chayav adam le'otet atzmo ki'ilu hu yitzadim yitzrayim. In every generation, one must see himself as if he personally went out of Egypt. That sense, it's not just for the exodus from Egypt. All of Jewish history, we, we train ourselves and our students and our children to feel as if we were there. It's part, our identity is all of the Jewish people. And for 2,000 years of exile, we've been hoping and praying and yearning to come home. Very strongly, three times a day, we say, we want to come home to Israel. And then the Zionist movement was created as a political platform to allow us to fulfill those dreams. 
it makes total sense that when we came home in 1860 and 1880 and in 1900 and 1920, and also in the year 2000 and 2010, it makes perfect sense that we're so excited to come home that we don't notice that someone else has been here before us in the past 2000 years. It's a documented phenomena that we only live within our own story. You don't see what we're not prepared by our education identity to see. By and large, the Zionists in the 19th and 20th, 21st centuries didn't see that there are people here, indigenous people who've been living here for hundreds of years, perhaps some of them are even here 2,000 years. We didn't see. And our narrative, our exclusivist narrative, tells us that it's our home, it's our land, and they can stay, but as our guests. And if they don't behave properly, they don't belong here. I understand where that attitude comes from, but it's still wrong. And on the other side, Palestinians, I understand. They do have a connectedness to this land. Families that have been here for hundreds and more years, Christians and Muslim, they're in the same village as their great, 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 great grandfather, and sometimes even more than that. They don't know that the Jews were here before them, and they don't have to know, they don't care. And suddenly in 1860, 1880, and 1900, these Jews come pouring in, they say, we're gonna create a Jewish state. I can understand the resentment that causes, it's obvious. There's of course so much involved here, but both sides developed an exclusive this exclusivist identity. I call it the hubris of exclusivity. It's a disease. That's why I said to you in our previous conversation, we need healing from that disease of the hubris of exclusivity. So it's understandable, but it has to change. If it doesn't change, we'll continue to kill each other. In other words, I'm identifying the ultimate source of violence in identity, religion and identity, which means that peace will come, as I said, not just through a treaty and through political negotiations. There has to be a process of reconciliation, of healing trauma, of recognition of the other's identity, et cetera. I've made a, an earlier point. Oh, about home. I couldn't explain it, but I was home, meaning in Israel, uh, even though I had escaped with my life from the World Trade Center, I was thinking like, oh my God, I'm home and I, I can't believe I feel home. And, and yet there are these terrorists that are driving into people and doing very vile things. And how do I make sense of that? And I want to make peace with them because I know deep down, just like Anne Frank said, every I still believe that everyone is really, really good. But how do you do that when they're raised from a young age, not all of them, but many, to believe that all Jews are evil? How do you make peace with someone who fundamentally has mixed their politics or spiritual leader telling them, oh, and by the way, this line in your text literally means we, we need to kill all Jews and Christians. At least that's the way I was. Yeah. it was explained to me. My answer to that is face-to-face -face contact. You're right, there can't be peace when one side or the other or both thinks there's something fundamentally evil in the other side. But uh, those types of thoughts, which are again are about identity and about religion, identity is fluid, type of demonizing thoughts, which are widespread, begin to change as you learn from your podcast last week when you meet the other begin to think so roots um, our organization begins with human contact with activities that are social uh eating together singing together talking together dialogue a lot of religious events together photography workshops 
music workshops, summer camps, day camps, uh, interfaith dialogue, working together, picking olives. And it's all designed to begin to, to penetrate that hard exclusivist identity that says we're right and you're wrong. We're better than you. Our story is the only story in this land. Your story is not legitimate. We get to know each other. We see the human being. We hear their stories. We begin to understand that those stories are, are true. Yeah, that's, they live here and they are who they are. But we don't stop with the humanizing. We go to identity. Humanizing provides the basis to hear the other's identity. And that's so challenging. That's so difficult. But ultimately, we've discovered in Roots that at least some people who go through the process become transformed. And I'm a primary example of that. I'm, my thoughts, my consciousness, my heart are so different than they were seven and a half years ago. Because you've met Arabs, Palestinians, Muslims, who you get to see beyond the outer layer of their identity. I want to I be very clear here in this Nikuda, this one point. There are some Jews right now listening to this saying, like you said before, some people think I'm an anti-Semite bar because I talked to Palestinians. It made me cry when you said that. All I want to do is talk to other, try to see the beauty in between and around all of us and try to like make it work. I can understand someone growing up in the state of Israel and watching a sibling or a parent get bulldozed by a car in the middle of Jerusalem and someone dies or gets badly injured that they love and being terrified of that person who calls themselves and I'm a Muslim or I'm a Palestinian and, and I just you know killed someone with the car. I'd be terrified of that person too. Just like you said, your wife screamed and you said, I can't have a conference. How am I going to go 500 meters? I need a pastor from America to set up the meeting thousands of miles away. I mean, that that's, that's almost comical um, and very sad at the same time. But what I'm saying is, I want to make very clear that when you say I'm learning their identity, you're not, you're not saying, Rav Hanan is not saying. And so now I get that, that we should all kill the Jews, or now I understand their political platform or that, that idea that part of their identity is totally right, that they should want to kill. No, what you're saying is there's a person, you're talking more about the beautiful parts of their, their fundamental beliefs, their and the fact that they may believe this is their home, just like you believe that this is your home and you're having a conflict there, but you see the whole person. You don't see someone sitting there who's correct in wanting to kill someone just because of other. Yes, of course. I have certainly met Palestinians who've said that this land is Muslim land and the Jews don't belong here. I've certainly met Palestinians who've said it's legitimate to kill Israelis because force is the only thing that you guys understand. The only way to free our land is to kill you. I've heard all those things. And my job is to number one, listen, understand where it's coming from. And number two, to help that person understand differently because of meeting me. It's not that I convince him that he's wrong by an academic or a rational argument, rather by coming face to face with my identity, my people's connection to this land, my people's suffering, my people's coming home, my people's effort to secure our own security for the future, that Palestinian begins to expand his identity just like I expanded my identity by meeting his people. And what happens in the end, and I know hundreds of cases in which the Israeli Jew begins to see 
the truth and the legitimate grievances of the Palestinian, and the Palestinian begins to see and understand the truth of the Israeli identity and the legitimate grievances and aspirations of the Israeli Jew Zionist, and then we become advocates, not just for me, but for you as well. We do not become advocates of you and not me, but we come to a place of understanding that I want to and I should be allowed to actualize my identity, but not at your expense and vice versa. That this doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Right. I agree with that. And I think I'd like to see if you had we'll have to like 12 principles of faith and how to have dialogue and what it would look like to actually be advocates for each other and for human life, just for humanity to be peaceful in general. Here's what changed for me. I was once taken by an old boyfriend, a really sweet, good neshama uh, soul to not a rally, but a, a conversation in a JCC once. And it was for Shalom Akshav, it was for peace now. I wanted to pull my hair out. I most recently come back from Israel, like the fourth or fifth time studying there. We had this great relationship. We learned so much from each other. He took me to this thing and it was two or three uh, Palestinians talking about their horrific lives in Israel. Israel's evil and horrible and look at these horrifying things. And I just, there was no other voice. It was just their voice. And because I had all this pain and suffering in my heart and in my head and knowing people who died in the conflict and seeing how well-meaning Israel was and how we tried so hard to, we, meaning like I'm only on Israel's side, to do all these beautiful ways of, of not hurting someone, but pulling out the terrorists. It just hurts. And I, I, I left feeling so betrayed by my fellow Jews in the room. And it, there was no peace now. There was just upset and upheaval and anger now. <laughs> all I felt now was betrayed. And I, I got up, I asked a question and everybody came down hard on me and called me like a fascist because I had a question about what, how the Palestinians were handling the conflict. And I basically was like, kind of pushed out of the room because I had feelings about Israel. It was not a pro-Israel thing, whatever that, you know, it didn't feel that way. And maybe I was going in with myopic vision, but I, I always reference that moment because there's so much that comes up, so much gets triggered when I hear people fighting for Palestinian rights and land. And I'm just being totally honest, even though I also am for Palestinian life, I don't always look at it like it's their land. That's just, you know, cause I know that, you know, the differences in history, but in the most recent, uh, you know, few years, I've started to wonder why is Bibi Netanyahu still in power? And why do we get so comfortable fighting? Why do we get so comfortable being correct all the time? We can't be right all the time. There's sort of this weird feeling I get. We're, we can get so political and so correct. We're so busy fighting for us to be right, which we have every right to do because so, sometimes it feels like the whole world is against us. Where is kindness? If we really don't like what Hamas is doing or the leaders of Hamas, we, we both agree that the Hamas charter is pretty unfortunate. It's, it's, I find the, the language in it vile. I've never seen anything like that in a political statement by Jews. I've never heard that. I've never seen a suicide bomber that was Jewish go into a bus and try to... Now, I'm also not saying they could feel so alone that this is their only hope, but I, I don't like that argument. I think it's it's cruel to think of someone being a martyr by killing other people and themselves and other, I just, I don't justify that at all. 
But here's my problem. And this is this is what led me to this interview. If we really are for Palestinian rights and and human kindness and civil rights, because that's what I stand for, then why am I not seeing more Jews every single day standing up and along with taking on this is our land and we're we're going to make it a peaceful place and a democ and continue to be the only democracy in the Middle East where LGBTs are free and we can have a gay pride parade and all that stuff that I totally support for free speech for everyone. Why are we not making it our job to get rid of terrorist organizations and really fighting for the rights of those people? How did we not by now find a way to pull innocent people out of wherever they are, go in there anyway, do whatever we can, because I just don't see that a lot. I, I, I am for free Palestinians from Hamas's terror or Hezbollah, Jihad, all that stuff. I want to free them from that. We are so for the right way of logically proving our, that we belong there, that the kindness sometimes just falls by the wayside. Now, I also see a lot of kindness still happening at the same time, but when I hear you talk about it, I just start to cry because I, I believe what you're doing is God's work. I believe we all should be doing this as much as we should be proving. That's what I'm trying to say. As much as we should be proving that we're correct and we deserve to be in the land, we should all be having circles every day. It should be part of our, our daily life to have a conversation with someone who's not Jewish, like get away from the politics, get away from the fundamental religious beliefs and just, by the way, how are you? How's, how's your life? To delve into the matter of trauma. The Jewish people are traumatized people. We've suffered 2,000 years of exile, of persecution, of pogroms, of anti-Semitism, of the Inquisition, of the Holocaust. And of course, to a certain degree, we are a self-traumatizing people because we've used the memory of what the others have done to us as a way of strengthening our own in-group identity. You know, we say in the Passover Seder that every generation they come to exterminate us. And we've come to expect that from the world. That, that's the way it's supposed to be. Actually, in the Midrashic literature, it, it's really true that that's part of the nature of the world that God has created according to some strands of thought. They're supposed to persecute us and we're supposed to barely survive. And we came home to Israel 100 years ago, the Jewish people through the Zionist movement. And because of many, many, many factors, we have this conflict between our two peoples, Israel and Palestine. And we Jews, to a large degree, have interpreted the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in terms of that saying from the Passover Seder in every generation, they come to annihilate us. In other words, today, many of us, many, many of us, Israeli Jews, unconsciously and sometimes consciously see the Palestinians as the next iteration of Hitler, who was the next iteration of Chelnitsky, who was the next iteration of the Inquisition, going back all the way to the Roman destruction of the Second Temple. And we see here a pattern we think we see a pattern, that's the way things are. They're always gonna be against us. There's nothing we can do about it. We just have to sit tight and hold them off, defend ourselves, maintain our exclusivist identity. And given that trauma and that re-traumatizing, and it's happening again and again before our eyes with every war in Gaza, we're traumatized and our narratives are re-traumatizing us. 
under those conditions, it's very hard for someone to say, I want to meet my Palestinian neighbor. But yeah. nevertheless, we have to do it. Right. I agree. And it also gets harder when you sit on Clubhouse, like I just did over the last few days, weeks, a uh, couple weeks. And I hear supposedly 500,000 people have sat in this room and it's called Is Palestinians Meeting Israelis, the raw conversation. And I'm sitting in there and I'm sitting in there and all I hear about is these poor Palestinians are have such a horrible life. And Bibi Netanyahu sucks and Israel is a horrible place and, and it's a genocidal land and all these things and, and, and these stories that were, like you said, painful to listen to. And because there's so many more Palestinians in the room than Jews um, or Arabs from around the world or Muslims from around the world or Christians from around the world and, and well-meaning Jewish people who are very, very on the left, so to speak, that are constantly talking about how horrible Israel is and we have to change our ways. I'm not hearing a lot of Israelis or Jews in that room talking about how hard it's been for us. And so I immediately get, you know, my back goes up and I get defensive and I think, oh, another room, another conversation, another social media post about how horrible we are. And it just, it adds to that trauma. So I called you because I said, can you help? You know, how do we get our voice out there? And I think what I'm learning is, I say this a lot on the podcast because I thought it was such a brilliant thing to say. Michelle Obama once said, when they go low, we go high. In other words, some of the people who are running that room know, I believe, that they're getting a big message out there that Israel's not perfect, which is great, wonderful. Israel's not perfect. What, what else is new? But they know they're not having other people on, on the platform it's almost like a manipulative, to me, it's a, it's a little manipulative to have one side always be sharing stories and you don't hear a lot from the other side. And I wonder if that's God saying, no, no, this is, this is an important matter right now. And yes, it does appear to be that Israel gets a lot more money than the other side and a lot more power in certain ways than the other side, if it's a two-sided thing. Um, and maybe it's time like you're saying, to really go high when people are going low or sharing, you know, just a lot of the other side right now, because there's something we're not looking at. And that's why I cry, because deep down, I really want to believe we will get along one day and that we can live democratically in the same land. And I don't, I honestly don't care deep down if someone thinks it's their land and someone thinks, that what's that song? This land is your land. We, I believe we both could live there at the same time. I just don't want any killing. I think it's perfectly okay to have completely diametrically opposing fundamental religious beliefs and still love an other, still care and respect and save lives of the other. And I just hope we get to that place. And when I see you and this beautiful work that you're doing where it's healing first and then peace, I mean, that is the most brilliant thing I've heard in a really long time. Thank you. How can we learn more about you? What can we do to support you in your efforts? The website is friendsofroots.net, friendsofroots.net. On Facebook, it's Friends of Roots. On Instagram, I don't remember, actually. Uh, it's uh, written on our website, what we are on Instagram. It's not Friends of Roots, as far as I remember. And we really urge people to look at the website, learn about our work, sign up for the quarterly newsletter there, 
like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. Recommend to people to join interfaith dialogue groups in their home cities and towns. Jews, Christians, Muslims, and other religions to meet the other, talk to the other. I say to use social media to spread the good news and not the bad news. Everyone else is spreading the bad news. And when you spread only the bad news and you read only the bad news, you think that's all that's happening. And that creates despair. And it weakens those of us who would like to try and do something. You come to conclusion, nothing you can do. But if you spread the good news, and there is good news, you have to find it because often it's not reported. If you spread the good news, that creates hope. And hope creates a sense of agency that, yes, something can be done. There's a group of people doing it. I can join them. I can do it in and of itself. If you do nothing else, just spreading the good news has a positive effect. If we had 10,000 people decided only to spread the good news on Facebook, that could make a sea change. To never spread the bad news, let other people do it. Just to even out the, uh, the impression again to create hope. Of course, of course, of course, of course, we want people to visit Roots. When they come to visit Israel-Palestine, they should come to visit us. The website can tell you how to listen to our uh, webinars, to invite us to do a webinar for your synagogue, church, mosque, university, uh, community center, to invite us to speak face-to-face uh, -face in synagogues, churches, mosques. We're doing a speaking tour, another one, November 5th to 21st of 2021. Myself and one of my Palestinian partners will be speaking in 20 or 30 institutions during a three-week period across, across the country. Invite us to speak. It spreads the word, creates hope, gives you agency, and also, of course, raises money for us, which brings us to the last thing, give us money. We need millions and millions of millions of dollars. Uh, healing, trauma therapy, summer camps, state camps, youth movements, little kids, older kids, adults, men, women, bring people together in all these different types of groups cost a lot, a lot of, a lot of money. And the truth is that there are just about no large funds, philanthropic funds that would support us because what we're doing, we're not making secular peace, we're making religious peace. We're bringing the radicals, the people most invested in working against peace, we're bringing them together. We work with Hamas, not formally, work with people who've been connected to Hamas, we work with people who've been in Israeli jail, we work with people who you would call terrorists. Yes, we work with those people, and they're changed, and that's powerful. Uh, we believe that the land belongs to both sides, from the river to the sea, and we still believe in reconciliation. There are not too many, uh, like I said, funds that support that type of work. We work in the occupied territories, bring us back to that word occupied. Almost no funds give money to creating reconciliation in occupied territories. So, that was uh, the other thing I was going to ask you is how do you how do you justify that you're living in an occupied territory right now? Ah, so let me speak a little bit about that. Uh, let me talk about a conversation I once had with a friend of mine living here in the same settlement I live in. The conversation went like this. Hanan uses the word occupation in some sentence. Friend says there's no occupation. Hanan says there's an occupation. Friend says there's no occupation. Hanan says there's an occupation. Occupation, end of the conversation. Now, what happens in those conversations? There's something that Ariel Sharon once said, right? A right winger in Israel, if there ever was one. He said, when we argue over if there's an occupation or there's an occupation, 
we're just not getting the terms straight. You have to distinguish between land and people. There's no doubt that the Palestinian people live under occupation. If you want to talk about the land, we can legitimately disagree. In legal terms, in sociological terms, is the land occupied? I can say it's not occupied. You can say it is occupied or vice versa, but there's no doubt that the people live under occupation. I have a Palestinian friend who always tells the story that he's sitting in, in a conversation and a Jewish speaker is explaining why there's no occupation. And the Palestinian is saying to himself, but I live under occupation. Where do I get a, where do I get a permit to enter Israel from the military? Who's the governor of my area? It's an Israeli general. Who controls the water? It's an Israeli general. Who oh, the police is the Israeli army. Of course, I live under occupation. If you want to say the land isn't occupied because it's Jewish, then you can say that, and perhaps you're right. But the Palestinian people are an occupied people, and they're occupied by my people. So what did you ask me? If, how could I use the term occupation? That's how I can use the term occupation. No, how do you justify living in the occupied ah. territories? You're living there, and you're yes, also yes. trying to support people who are saying, t telling you you're occupying their land right now. That's a really important question. I believe, just like the Palestinian people have a connection to the whole land, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, I believe the Jewish people have a deep historical religious connection to the whole land, the same whole land, from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. And I believe that both sides, including my side, should have the right to live in any part of that land that he or she chooses. So to say that the West Bank slash Judean Samaria should not have Jews living in it is, is wrong. I live in Judean Samaria because it's my homeland and I should have the right to live here. That's for sure. However, I do believe that the way my people, the Jewish people, has exercised its right to live in Judean Samaria is wrong. The, the right is true and legitimate, but the way we've been exercising that right is wrong because we've been exercising our right at the expense of the other side. We've constructed a system of occupation that is good for us and bad for them, that gives us rights and takes rights away from them. And that is wrong. So, so how do I, you live there? Right, I have to continue. So I'm certainly against the structure the systematic structure of life that I live within. How do I justify it? The truth is that it's a matter I struggle with. But when I ask my Palestinian partners what I should do, they want me to stay. It always comes down to that because they don't want their people creating justice by way of creating injustice. They already said they don't want their people exercising their right to Palestine by throwing Jews out. They don't want to make it Juden ridden. They don't want to be those who are creating injustice in the effort to create justice. And secondly, they would rather have Hanan Schlesinger as an advocate for Palestinian rights where he is now than living in Tel Aviv or New York. This is the heart of the conflict zone. Palestinians don't need more settlers, but they need more settlers like me. They need more roots. So I am living in an ambig ambiguous uh, moral situation. To leave Judean Samaria would be immoral. To stay here is also immoral because of the system of life that uh, justifies and allows my existence. So what I have to do is stay where I am and do my best to change the system. And that's, I think, what the answer is for all Jews.
and all Palestinians and all Muslims as well is to be a Rav Hanan Schlesinger, like wherever you are right now, for all people really, fight the good fight for human rights, even at the expense of whatever your political beliefs are, what your fundamental religious beliefs are, really check in to see what those are. Because if you're really being, I, I believe deep down, everyone really wants that anyway. It's just how we go about doing that. Like I could tell you, multiple families right now who you would consider right-wing Jews, right-wing Republican, right-wing BB lovers that really want human rights for every single Arab, every single Muslim in the world. Are they doing that with their voting? Are they showing that in the way they talk about things? No, but deep down, they're just like you. Absolutely. They want everyone to be peaceful. They cry. Golda Meir, what did she say? You know, when these people stop hating Jews more than they love their own children who they're putting the bombs on and going to kill, then we'll have peace. I think what she's saying in a twisted way is we all really just want peace. That's it. My grandma used to say, why can't they stop already? We, we just want to love each other. Why are they being so mean? But there's this, it's so weird as we grieve and cry about they're going to exterminate us. Maybe we should try to take that out of the, the liturgy, because I don't think Hashem wrote that. I don't think God wrote that in the Torah. I don't, I don't. I mean, maybe, am I wrong? You're well, way more versed than me. Is that in Navi that they're always going to try to hurt us and we have to just keep fighting them? It's not explicit in the Torah or in the uh, Bible, but there are certainly elements of Jewish literature that develop that way of thinking. And I do think that that is uh, destructive. And we do have to uh, revamp parts of our liturgy and parts of our identity, as, as we've been talking. You're not uh, insinuating to change the words of the Torah, but maybe to interpret it in a new way. To yeah, say, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Stop saying they want to kill us. Start saying we all want to get along. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's identity on both sides. That is, and, and going back to what you said a minute ago, that so many people want peace. Well, we have to make sure that while we want peace, we're not acting in a fashion that makes war. In too many cases, we say we want peace, but we're acting in a fashion and talking in a fashion and believing in a fashion that actually creates more conflict. Give me an example. What's something we shouldn't say? Just what we're saying right now. Uh, if if an Israeli Jew says, I want peace, why are they killing us? and continues, say, to vote for parties that continue a militaristic approach to this conflict and continue ignoring Palestinian humanity and dignity and rights. Of course, we do it without realizing it, we're doing it. There's so much Israel is doing right now to continue to fuel this conflict, to continue this conflict. Again, we don't do it on purpose. We don't do it knowingly. And the other side does it as well. But we could end this conflict if we wanted. Who is we? Israelis and Palestinians. It's not God's uh, decree that we keep killing each other. It's our mistakes. It's our weaknesses. It's our sins. Again, ours means both sides that are causing us to kill each other. We can stop. I was studying this. I'll end on this because I know you have a million people's lives to save. So I'm going I'm to let you go. Um, but I've been learning this whole year with uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza and this small group of really loving, at, we're called healers, and we do this coherence healing where we send out loving 
energy to the entire world. And it sounds really woo-woo and hokey. I'm loving it because for the first time in a very long time, I'm sitting with people of all races, genders, sexual orientations, religious beliefs, and all we do is just send love into the world. It's really holy. I do it a couple times a week. And we have uh, wonderful meetings about it. And it's all about really changing the energy of the entire world to what's called like the 5D, like this new vision of like hope and peace and prosperity. I think it's very messianic and really beautiful. And I can't even explain what's happening in there. My dad's doing it. He's uh, in chemo right now and his numbers are going up, thank God. And I've been sending people who have physical ailments and it's really helping them. I believe it's just a portal for a bunch of people to sit around and say, I believe in God. I believe in oneness. And I believe that everyone is healing. And as soon as you take a deep breath and you just imagine the whole world healing, it really works. (laughs) I believe this. And when I heard you speak the other day and you said healing first, then peace, I thought to myself, you can't really be on a platform fighting for peace fighting for rights and believe that the world is fully healed and and there's a possibility for complete reconciliation and love at the same time. You just can't because one is saying, I have to fight for my rights. And it's like this. And the other one is a very calm. "Mm, I just believe that everything's good and all is good and all is one. And that's when I started to feel within myself, I've got to talk to Rav Hanan Schlesinger more because he is doing it. I can feel just in the way that you speak about it, you're on this level of energy. It's like a platform. It's like another, like, oh, there's all those people fighting down there or on the side over here. And I'm over here just believing in peace, really believing we can achieve it, really knowing that two people with completely opposing sort of fundamental religious beliefs can live in the same land and say, it's mine, it's mine, but it's actually ours. And, you know, I love you and you love me and we're respecting each other. So thank you for getting my heart opened a little bit more to that idea and, and also helping me to acknowledge what I've known all along, which is you can't really have both at the same time. Does that make sense to you too? Both at the same time meaning? What are the two boats? You can't really say there is a possibility for complete peace and oneness and at the same time be saying, I have to fight for my rights and I have to fight the social media campaign and all these, you know, for instance, like Gabor Mate, I told, I sent you that interview. And what did you say to it when he was interviewed by Russell Brandt and saying Israel is a genocidal place and it's worse than the Holocaust and multiply it by multiply what Hamas does times a thousand, you won't even get close to what Israel's done to them. That's, I'm butchering the quote, but that's basically what he said. And what did you say back? I think I said three things. Number one, that there is uh, exaggerated language in what I heard. Number two, there's no larger and historical context in what I heard. Number three, what was the third thing I said? Some of what he was saying was correct. Uh, right, that's the fourth thing. And that there's a, there's, there's a us versus them mentality. Zero-sum game in what I said. 
But after all those three points, I think 80 to 85% of the things I heard in that podcast are true. Do you so think, that, yeah. so to reiterate my very poorly stated question, do you think you can believe in a true peace and at the same time, believe in fighting for rights at the same time? Yes, I do, but it has to be done properly. And I'm not sure we have the, the time for the context here to talk about, uh, uh, talk about that. I, I would like to close with a, uh, well, I close all my talks with, which is this. If you began to listen to this session today as a strong supporter of Palestine, I hope you leave this session as a strong supporter of Palestine. And if you entered this session today as a strong supporter of Israel, I hope you leave as a strong supporter of Israel. But I hope that neither the first person or the second person leaves as a strong supporter of one side at the expense of the other side. To support one side at the expense of the other side, to be against the other side, is only a recipe for more war and conflict. What we need are people who are strong supporters of Israel and strong supporters of Palestine at the very same time. That's the only way to be a strong supporter of reconciliation and peace. Thank you so much. I have not stopped crying this whole time. <laughs> I have a frog in my throat. Um, I'm so blown away by your courage. Thanks. And you haven't aged a bit since 20 years ago. And God bless you. And may God continue to, to fuel you with uh, an inner peace that's so beautiful. And it's, it's so simple in a way that it really is more contagious than the pandemic. And we all get sick with it in a good way that we all have that because we really need it. Wonderful blessing. Thank you. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, I'm going to do my best to very quickly highlight some, not all, but some of the golden nuggets of wisdom from this incredible episode. So if you're driving, pull over and write these down or text them to yourself or text them to somebody else along with this episode so that they can get the most out of this incredible episode. There cannot be peace while teaching demonizing ideas about other as well as we're better than you. Our story is better than yours. We have to let go of an exclusivity that permeates our individual communities and the way that we speak about ourselves. Humanizing people creates room for identity. It can be challenging, but it can be transforming. That last line is a direct quote from Hanan. Rav Hanan says, I had to experience the other as he experienced me. My people's triumph is his people's tragedy. My people's justice is his people's suffering. We have to find ways to bring everyone's truth into one heart and one land. And that goes really for any two peoples or more sharing a land together. That's not just happening in the Middle East. That's happening in multiple places around the world. You can't tell anyone else who they are. They really have to discover it for themselves. There's no other way forward except to recognize our truth and the other's truth at the same time. Rav Hanan says that he believes Israel is a Jewish land, but our presence cannot come at the expense of another people who have also a direct connection to the land. Political negotiations are important, very important, 
but they have to be accompanied by embracing identity. Otherwise, the political negotiations will only create enemies. In the past, the only people that were debating on what political negotiations there would even be were secular Jews and secular Muslims. And we really, in order to create a beautiful, lasting peace, need to include all voices. And once again, if you'd like to reach out to Rav Hanan Schlesinger, invite him to speak at your synagogue, church, mosque, temple, shrine, community center, home, uh, while he's in the United States or while he's traveling to other places, if you'd like to make a donation, or if you would just like to send a supportive email, please send it to friendsofroots.net. Just go to their website and you'll look for the contact page. Go to www.friendsofroots.net. That's F-R-I-E-N-D-S-O-F-R-O-O-T-S.net. Or visit them on their Facebook page at Friends of Roots or at their Instagram page, which is instagram.com backslash building peace underscore Israel Palestine. And Israel is always spelled I-S-R-A-E-L. Thank you so much for taking this incredible journey with me. This, I believe, is the longest episode that we've had to date, but there was so much good stuff that we wanted to include. So I hope you appreciated it. And if you know someone who could really benefit from this episode, please share it. Text them the link either on Spotify or iTunes. Please follow us on Facebook. We have a community page as well as just a regular Facebook page. Uh, Just look for See One Beautiful Soul. And please join me in I Am Ready to Tell My Story in the Facebook group uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. I really appreciate you. Let's go out there and continue to be peaceful, create peace, and share moments of peace as much as we possibly can. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode can inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else else you hear podcast. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always. always.